from Parkway Church in Kurana, this is the Parkway Podcast. Our prayer is that this message blesses and encourages you today as you listen. If you would like to know more information on who we are as a church, you can visit our website, weareparkway.com. So I'm here with a very special guest. Um, for those of you who don't know, this is my son. And um, this morning, we're going to, you know, I, gotta, I have a few stories that are very familiar to us that are kind of been sitting in my heart a little bit that over the next few weeks, I kind of want to look at. Um, stories that are really familiar to us as a church because as Christians, or if you've grown up in church, would be familiar to you. Because as Christians, we're often taught these as young kids, right? They're kind of those ones that are in the children's Bible books, you know, those, those prominent ones. And, and this guy caught wind this morning that I was reading one of his favorites, and so he wanted to share a little bit of it this morning. He wanted to tell the story this morning. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Daniel chapter 3, and this guy, Joshua, is going to tell us the story. So I'm telling, so I'm telling the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So um, the, there was this king that he made... Um, a big statue, and he um, asked everybody to bow down to it. Um, and if they don't, then um, he he said, "If you don't bow down, then I'll throw you, I'll throw you in a fire, in a furnace." And then um, a music. Music played, and um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego um, didn't bow down, but all of the other people did. So he got so angry, and he threw them in the fire pit. And then the person that um, threw them in the fire pit, the, the um, furnace was so hot that, that it burned them. But then um, when the king looked in the furnace, then he saw four people, and one looked like an angel. So he said... So he said, "You come out, Meshach, um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego." Then um, they came out, and he made them kings in his kingdom. I couldn't have told that story better. Now, what's funny is that story is a children's story, at least. Seems like that way. But when you think about the, just the, what's happening in that story, it's not a kid's story. Like, he's up here, and he's like, and they're going to throw him into a fire. Like, it's no big deal. It, but there's, there's a lot in there. There's a lot in these stories that are written in, in kids' Bibles that we kind of take out and put in kids' Bibles that we overlook because we've heard them so often. But there's so many truths and, and illustrations that are, I think are valuable for us. And so I've been drawn to, to these ones. And this one in specific, uh, uh, specifically this morning, the, the story of three friends who are uprooted from their nation, and now they're living and working in a nation that is not their own. And we know it as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the fiery furnace. Or your Bible, if you have a little subtitle there, may see the image of gold and the blazing furnace. And here's what I want to point out to us this morning. Among a few other things, we're going to read it, pause, and share a little bit. But the main thing I want to point out to us this morning is what it means to live as a biblical minority. 
what it means to live as a biblical minority. What does it mean to live as a person whose values, beliefs, and way of life is patterned after Jesus, but who lives in a culture whose values and identity has moved significantly away from that foundation? We live in a post-Christian nation. Not that the church is no longer a thing because the church is a thing, but there is a complete move away from Judeo-Christian values and principles in Western culture. God is no longer the center. God can, no lo- or can be easily written out of your mind. Separation of church and state is every day. Churches are diminishing and generations are growing up right now who have never even heard the name of Jesus. Like There are kids, my kid's age, who don't, has never even heard the name Jesus. There's no reference point. And more and more, being a follower of Jesus puts you in the minority category. So what does it look like to live as somebody who follows Jesus but lives in this minority? And here's the tension, okay, is on the one hand, we are citizens of this land, unless you're you're not a citizen. (laughs) Welcome. On the one hand, we are citizens of of Canada, right? We, We are people who live in this land, but on the other hand, we are sojourners, We are temporary residents. We're people who should identify as citizens of heaven. And that is the tension. We are Canadians and and proud to be and loyal to Canada. But we also have a loyalty to the kingdom of God. And this is the story and tension of Daniel chapter chapter 3. So I want you to turn there if you have your Bible, Daniel chapter 3. And let's just begin with some prayer as we kind of look at it. Father, we just thank you for... This morning, thank you for uh, even my son who shares a story. Thank you for children, God, who are growing of faith. Lord, we thank you and bless our kids' ministry. And we pray that, that as we seek God just to, as parents and families, grandparents, uncles, aunts, as a church, to, to shape and create a foundation for children, Lord, that that foundation will, will serve them for the rest of their lives. And, and we pray, Father God, even as we turn our attention to your word this morning, that you'd speak to our hearts and maybe you'd reveal something new to us or show us something or transform us in a way that when we walk out these doors, we're a little bit more like Christ and we live a a little bit more for Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm gonna read the story for you today. I'm gonna pause and reflect a little bit along the way and then I'm gonna bring us back to that tension right right at the end. So we're in 600 BCE, right? Travel back in time to 600 BCE and It's the height of the Babylonian Empire. God's people, the Israelites, have been brought into exile, and King Nebuchadnezzar is at the helm of the empire. So it reads like this, Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 60 cubits wide. So that's about 90 feet tall, 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon, He then summoned the satraps, the the prefects, the governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. So all of the nation's officials and every single uh, official that represents every nation under Babylon came before this dedication to this image. 
right? Every single nation that is under Babylon is represented at this dedication of this image, this statue. And it says this, then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. Not what we're asking you to do, not what we, we'd like you to do. This is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing fire. It's comply or die. And here's where you're tempted. Some of you will be tempted to go this morning. Some of you are going to be tempted to look at this and immediately attach this to present-day circumstances and vaccine mandates. I'm going to ask that you don't do that. Because if you do that, you're going to miss the everyday lesson that is here. You're going to miss the, 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 the relevancy of this text for every single day. And you will, if you do that, all you'll see is that. And you won't see how this can apply to any other aspect of your life. So don't go there. Okay? Verse 6. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into the blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language, this is, this is everyone in the civilized known world at the time, fell down and worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So King Nebuchadnezzar at this time is the most powerful man in the world. He's the head of the global superpower of the day. It's 600 BCE, and he rules over the majority of the civilized world. We could do a whole series just around Nebuchadnezzar and the things that the scriptures say about this man. And under his rule are many people from many nations, many religions, many languages. So how do you, as the global superpower, consolidate your power? How do you ensure you remain the most powerful person over all the nations? Well, you do so by creating a civil religion and enforcing worship. One thing that everyone bows down to, regardless of tribe, regardless of tongue, religion, or deity you worship, you can do you as long as you also do this. So he sets up this image, which is an idol, a statue, likely plated in gold, and the leading idea is that this would have been a statue that was representative of Babylon, right? It would have been a national symbol for Babylon itself. So the music is played, and all of Babylon, every person under its rule bows down. Every person under its rule bows down, whether in true allegiance to Babylon or out of fear for Babylon. You bow down and you worship, and it continues. Verse 8. At this time, some astrologers or Chaldeans came down and came forward and denounced the Jews. So the Chaldeans were those who lived in kind of southern Babylon, and they were known to be often a, a militant or aggressive people group. Um, but in scripture, when you see the name Chaldean, it's almost synopsis with, uh, or <laughs> the synonym for um, Babylonian, right? Basically, they're saying a, a person of Babylonian nationality. So it says this, they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever, verse 9 and 10. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the, the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down 
and worship the image of gold. And that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you've set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image you have set up. So everybody worships, except for three guys. Everybody worships. Thousands worship, except for three. Everybody submits, three don't. Everybody out of allegiance or fear or something else goes with the flow, three do not. Everybody does one thing, and three guys quietly rebel. There was no rally. There's no protest. There's no march, no bullhorn. They're quiet about it. The king himself doesn't even take notice. In fact, the only people that did notice is this small group, the Chaldeans, and these were three guys, or these were guys who were working alongside of the three gentlemen. They were officials that were, that were working uh, like co-workers. They're co-workers with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they didn't like them. Because if you go back in the story, Daniel and, and these, these three gentlemen, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are promoted to the top echelon of the government, right? Daniel is second in charge of all of Babylon because he interpreted a king's dream. And these, these Chaldeans, these astrologers were envious because Hebrews, Hebrews had gained favor of the king and had been promoted in their nation. And so they didn't like it. And so, of course, they're paying attention. But this is quiet resistance of these three guys. And quiet rebellion. Verse 13, furious with rage. Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then, listen to this, then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Like, King Nebuchadnezzar is a megalomaniac. He is obsessed with power and authority and rulership. When someone doesn't submit to his directives, you see there's, there's hostility, there's, there's anger, there's prideful boasts. What God will be able to rescue you from my hand? He is full of himself. He's full of himself, and he wants all things for himself. It continues on in verse 16. It's where the story gets good. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. We don't got to say anything. I don't owe you anything. Verse 17, if we are thrown into the blazing fire, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. So they recognize in full faith the ability and power of God. Our God is able to deliver us from it. If you throw us in the furnace, our God is able to deliver us from it. Like you got to think, like, this is the king of the global superpower of the world. 
nations of every tongue and every language that is under Babylon right now are bowing down, are submitting. And there's three guys that are dragged before the highest court, the throne of this kingdom. And there's this, there's this confidence and there's, there's this boldness in them to say, if you throw us in the furnace, our God is able. This is not like brought before the boss of their company, right? This is not lower level tier government, you know, whatever you want to call it. This is the highest level that they're brought before. And they say, our God, the God we serve is able. Continues, it says, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. So not only do they have full faith in the power and ability of God, they have faith and confidence in what he will do. He will deliver us. Not only is he able, but he will. Like they know who God is. They know what he's capable of and they know what he will do. And then this is my favorite line. I love this line. This is my favorite line in the whole story, verse 18. But even if he does not, but even if he does not, so they know that he's able, they know that he will, and yet they claim, even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Their faith wasn't in what could be seen. And their faith wasn't in just rational thinking. Their faith was in what was supernatural. It was a belief that went beyond their natural sight. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 and 6. Verse 1 says this, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. I'm confident in and I'm assured in what I can't see with my natural eyes. I have confidence in and I have assurance in. That's, my, that's what faith it is. It says this in verse 6 of Hebrews chapter 11. And without faith, without that confidence in and assurance in what I do not see, without faith it is impossible to please God. God isn't looking for people who just rely on reason and logic and rational thinking. He's not just looking for some good people who go about using their mind to just figure out life. He's looking for people that are full of faith. And you know, if you look at the stories of Jesus, when Jesus walked on this earth, I love his response to faith. Here's here's Jesus' response to, to people who had faith. Truly, I tell you, I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Matthew 8, verse 8. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the men, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. He said, your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. Another one. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith. He said, why did you doubt? Remember the story of Peter sinking in the water after he just took a couple steps on water. And Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. You know what, guys, I'm really concerned about the ongoing crisis. I'm concerned about it. I'm concerned about our national response. 
I'm concerned about government actions. I'm concerned about food shortages and supply chain, or, uh, uh, supply chain disruption. I'm concerned about inflation and increased prices, especially in groceries. They're so expensive. I'm concerned about national debt. And, and if I'm honest, sometimes all that gets the best of me. Some days I just, I'm distraught because of all that I look at. But what I felt in my spirit this morning as I was prepping this message, I, do, I, this, I wasn't even planning on saying this, this until this morning. But as I was going over that, I felt like the bigger problem at hand is the faith problem of the church. It's the faith problem of the church. We have belief without faith. We, we have knowledge of God without faith. We know God or we say we do, but we do not have real faith in him. We put more confidence and assurance in the natural than we do the supernatural. We fail to recognize the power and ability and rule and the sovereignty of Christ. Mark chapter 16, verses 17 and 18. I've been brought a lot to this lately. It says, and these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons. And they'll speak in new tongues. And they'll pick up snakes with their hands. And they'll drink deadly poison. It will not hurt them at all. And they will place their hands on the sick and they will get well. You know, I'm convinced that in our in our culture, Christians, if we're put in a scenario like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that we would have great fear. And I think we would bow down. I think we would, we would submit. Because we don't want to be thrown in, in a blazing fire. <laughs> this is my hypothetical, Right? It is for us right now as we're talking about it, but I'm convinced that many in the church who claim to follow Jesus, you and me, when we're faced in the same circumstance, that we might not be among the three guys who don't bow down. We don't have confidence. We don't have assurance in what we do not see to resist the temptation, to give in to what everyone else gives in to. And please hear me. I'm going to tie in a moment. I'm not talking about the cultural mandates right now. Talking about everyday actions. They believe, these guys believe that God could and would deliver them. They had faith. And listen, they believe that he would and he could, but their decision to stand and not submit was not contingent on God's rescue. They're not like he's going to rescue us, so we'll stand firm. He's going to save us, so I'll be bold. Oh, it's King, ne we're brought King Nebuchadnezzar is about to throw us in a fiery furnace. It's okay, God will deliver us so we can, we can be bold. It's not contingent on that. Not contingent on that. Their decision to stand and not submit was contingent on their values, which was shaped by their faith. They had faith in God's ability. They believed he could and he would deliver. And that shaped their values. And their values shaped their actions. And so their action not to bow down and their action to be bold was based on those values, not contingent on God's deliverance. Are you tracking with me a little bit? It wasn't because God would come through. It's because their values were shaped. What they believed in, the principles on which they based their life, their foundation was, I'm not worshiping that because I only worship him. Not, I'm not worshiping that because he's going to rescue me if you, you know? 
Not that. So I got faith in, and I worship the Most High regardless of what happens, regardless of whether you throw me into a death oven or not. They believe. Their faith did not rest on God's promise to deliver, but on their values, which are shaped by their faith. So they don't yell and they don't scream. They respectfully respond and do your worst. Do your worst. Isn't that bold? Like, you, like, man, we talk about this. We, I talk about it with my kids and we talk about it in church. But that's bold. Like, that's really bold. Okay, let's try to put that in, in like present day, like Canada. Like, you're brought before like top government, <laughs> like, like above Trudeau. The, I don't know what they call it, CSIS? You know, I don't know. You're brought before, like, the authorities that can do something about it, and they don't, they don't put that on the news. What do you do? So, so quiet in here. So here's, this is not the 21st century, right? This is 6th century BCE. Religion and politics are one and the same, right? There's no separation. So what, you, what we need to understand about this is to not bow down was not only a deeply subversive act, but it was a threat to the status quo. It was a threat to the rule and the power and the authority of this global superpower. So let's continue to read verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual, which basically is the literary way of saying the hottest it could get. Okay, seven is a, is a number you'll see throughout Scripture. It's representative of completion or perfection. And commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace was so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Does this sound like a kid's story? Like, I'm going to read you a nice bedtime story today. Let's talk about the guys who got thrown into fire. <laughs> now, we believe this, like I say that humorously, but we believe this account to be true, right? We believe that this is not just allegorical. There are historical references to instances of slaves being burned alive in ovens. In, in fact, as a form of ex execution, burning is specified in the Code of Hammurabi, which was a Babylonian law book in 1900 BC. And we have a letter um, dating back around 700 BC, so a little bit before this, that mentions throwing priests into burning ovens. But we believe that this is a true account. This is not just like an allegorical story for illustrative purposes, right? Verse 20, 24, then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet. So verse 23 says, and these three men firmly tied fell into the blazing fire. Verse 24, then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly your majesty. Without a shadow of a doubt, it was only three. We can count to three. Maybe not more, but we can count to three, okay? Verse 25, he said, look, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And listen to this. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Pause for dramatic effect. 
Now, we believe that this is a reference to Jesus in the Old Testament. And what's cool is the king recognized it. And, and there was a significant, distinguishable difference between the three men and the fourth. That was just like four men. It's not like someone actually slipped another person in there, right? Like, I'm just going to throw this one in there while we throw these three. I don't like this guy. Let's get him in there. It was like, no, the fourth looks, looks like a son of the gods. Like, it, he looks divine. There's deity. There's something supernatural about that one. And we see this message throughout the scripture. God's with us right in the middle of trial. Because God was with them in the fire. The promise of God throughout scripture is, do not fear, do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you. Somebody? Anybody? Always, wherever you go. That's the message throughout the scripture. You can go from the beginning all the way to the end. You're going to see that. Do not fear, I am with you. The message of Christmas, we're coming up on Christmas. We just put up our Christmas decorations. We did that. The message of Christmas is what? God with us. Emmanuel, God is with us. The message of Pentecost is not only God with us, but he's in us. He's getting even closer. God is with us. God is in us. There's this really cool worship song right now. It's called There's Another in the Fire. And it says these words, and I wrote them down this week because I thought they were good. It says, there's a grace when the heart is under fire. And I'll count the joy come every battle because I know that's where you'll be. Sometimes we look at the, what it means to follow Jesus and we think that following Jesus means I'm exempt from trial. That no longer will I suffer. But the message to followers of Christ and the message of the scriptures is he's with us while you go through those fires. That you're no longer alone. When your life is patterned after the way of Jesus, when he is your king, and, and when you, he has your life and he has your time and he has your talent, he has your treasure, when he's your Lord and you face the fires of life, and when your values as a follower of Jesus Christ bring about opposition, or in this case, death ovens, blazing furnaces, there's a grace that is extended to you. And it comes in the form of peace and joy and certainty of who God is and what he can do in the midst of it all. That's the message of the New Testament. If God is for us, who can stand against us? And when you don't have those things, when you don't have the confidence and the assurance and the peace and the joy when fear and insecurity rule those moments of trial, I think we need to ask ourselves a hard question. Do I actually have faith? Do I actually trust? Am I really walking with him? What actually rules my heart? See, the assurance that Hebrews 11 talks about Right? Faith is the confidence and assurance in what we do not see. The assurance, the comfort, the fearlessness of knowing that grace, that even if I get thrown in, he's able, comes through daily walking with God. I can say that because daily I worship him, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they could look before the king and say, do your worst 
because daily they walk in with the Lord. Not just on a Sunday. Just get my dose on a Sunday, my hour and a half fix. That's going to hopefully last me for seven days until my next dose. Because if that's how you're doing it, when you're faced with something like this, you are not going to be able to say that. You will cower in fear. But they could say that because every single day they're in prayer. Every single day they're devoted. Even in exile. Like they're not living in a nation that's saying you can be free to do you. Like if you look at the beginning of the story in Daniel chapter 1, their names were changed. Like the Babylonian empire was changing everything about them. You got you to look like us. You got to dress like us. You got to act like us. You got to eat like us. I'm going to change your name. I'm going to change everything about you. I'm going to assimilate you into our culture. And they, they're there. That's their world. But every single day they're walking with God. And so when it comes to the pinnacle, you know, you can, you can call me something else. Call me Jake. Call me Jack. Call me Carl. Call me Carl. Call me Pastor. Whatever. You can call me what you want. You can, you can make me change my clothes. You know, you can try to get me to eat something, but at the end of the day, the veggies, it says, is the best ones. Shameless plug for vegetarians. You can do all that, but, but don't tell me who I can't worship or who I, who I need to worship. Put me in prison. Put me in fire. Do anything you want, but don't tell me who I'm going to worship because that is where I draw the line. Right? Let's continue. Nebuchadnezzar approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out. Come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the royal advisors crowded around them. And they saw their amazement. They saw that the fire had not harmed their robes, their bodies, nor the hair on their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. It's like they were in a, you know when you're in a bonfire, and the next day you're smelling all your clothes, and you're like, man, I just wasn't like, there's no smell, there's no nothing. Verse 28, then Nebuchadnezzar said, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and they defiled the king's command. That's me, he's saying. And were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any God except their own God. So here's the change in the, the king's thinking a little bit, right? They disobeyed me, but I got respect now. Go respect for it. Verse 29, therefore I decree that people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, this is where he's not totally sanctified yet, be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble for no other God can save in this way. Then, then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So this is a story of disturbing the status quo. And let me bring this back to the tension that, that we live in, okay? Because we look at this and we laugh at it. We laugh at it. Like there's a, we don't see similarities. Like they're worshiping a 90-foot statue. Come on. Like if, our, if anybody told you, you, you go to work one day and your boss is like, hey, I erected a gold statue in the back. You know, before you work today, you got to bow down and pay some homage to that statue. You're going to be like, that's, that's, no. 
Anybody, right? We saw that in our nation. We, we're just laughing at it. But we have these things in our culture. The Americans have the Statue of Liberty, like literally. And I think it's like 300 feet tall. There's the Eiffel Tower, Leaning Tower of Pisa. And like, we don't bow down to these things, but they represent something. You know, when I was in school, we sang the national anthem every day. Not only did we sing the national anthem, but we had to say a pledge of allegiance to the flag with our hand over our heart every single day. Now, that's not wrong. I'm not saying that's wrong. I love our national anthem. Appreciate Canada. But the point is, is we don't bow down to a 90-foot statue, but we still do some of the same things. We stand at attention. We take an oath. I took an oath. I was not born Canadian. I became a Canadian citizen later on in life, so I had to take an oath. Some of you just got, like, birthed in. You know? Luckily, I was young enough that I didn't have to take any test at the time, but some people have to do that. Pledge allegiance. We salute the flag. And that's what they did when they bowed down. It was an allegiance to. It's not about relationship with with the king or the statue. It's not about worship. It's about I'm aligning myself to this nation, whether it's out of appreciation or fear. Now, I'm proudly Canadian, and I support our country. But for followers of Jesus, at what point do the lines between allegiance to Christ and the kingdom of God get blurred? Or in our culture, and our cultural values. Canada is not a Christian nation. not a Christian culture. Its values are not biblical values. From marriage to sexuality to the sanctity of life, Judeo-Christian values are no longer core to our country's identity. I'm just going to be very frank, okay? I love Canada. Marriage is no longer defined as one man and one woman as Christ defines it, but alternative lifestyles are not only promoted but applauded. Marriage was for life, and divorce was the exception. Well, that's flipped. Marriage is now a contract, and divorce is the norm. The nuclear family is no longer considered necessary for preserving any sort of social order, but rather individualistic pursuits and happiness trump communal values. A few decades ago, you couldn't even open a business on a Sunday. Now, if you are a business that closes on a Sunday because of faith reasons, you are demonized. This one really gets me. Abortion has been readily and legally available in Canada since 1988. Did you know in 2019, 84,000 pregnancies ended in abortion in Canada? More persons died from abortion in one year in Canada than the entirety of COVID in Canada. You don't hear those numbers. Did you know that we screen unborn babies for abnormalities from as early as 12 weeks gestation so that if the life has, say, Down syndrome, you can abort it if you want. There's no sanctity of life. Medical assistance in dying is now legal. More and more, the values and foundation of our country is like with Babylon. It's, it's, it's a nation full of nationalities, faith, religions, freedoms, and I like that. I love the fact that we are multicultural. I love the fact that people can have freedom here to worship how they want to worship. 
But followers of Jesus are sojourners here. This is temporary space for us. This is not our permanent home. The New Testament talks about this, that we are aliens and strangers. We forget that. So how do we live as those whose foremost allegiance is to Jesus in a culture and a nation who does not identify with Christ? How do we live under the overwhelming pressure to do what everyone else is doing? And that is this story of Daniel chapter 3. I invite the worship team to come. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to worship what everyone else is worshiping. They refuse to bow down to what everyone else is bowing down to. Now, don't miss where I'm going with this, okay? This may not be a huge problem for you when it's a 90-foot statue. <laughs> it, the waters get a little muddy when, it, when the worship or the object of our worship sits on a much smaller scale. The issue for you may be that there's something about the way of life in our society that's really easy for you to elevate over your commitment to Jesus. Hopefully you know where I'm going now. Maybe for you that's secularism, materialism, money, sexual freedom, issues of individualism. It's easy to misplace your loyalty. Super easy. What is the response of a follower of Christ living in a Babylon? Uh, pastor and, and author John Mark Comer, he gave an answer to something like this, and he called it non-participation. It all starts with a simple, ordinary acts of non-participation. So let me give you some examples, okay? You're out with drinks with your friends. You have a drink, not wrong. Drinking is not sinful. Drunkenness, the Bible says, is sinful. Not wrong. You're having a drink with a friend. Waiter comes around and says, round two, everybody. Buddy's like, yeah. You're just like, no, not for me. What? Come on. What's the problem? Oh, you know what? One's enough. One's enough for me. I know my limit. Know my line. It's non-participation. You go out for shopping and, and there's a sale because it's Christmas time and there's a new pair of boots and they're the new ones. Everybody's got them. We're getting them. Oh, you should get these. No thanks. I already have a pair of boots. In fact, I have three, maybe four. Maybe you're one of those people that has six or seven. Maybe you got a whole wall of shoes. No, I'm okay. Why not? It's all it's saying. They're the new ones. They got the little holes on the side. Check them out. The newest celebrity is wearing them too. You've seen so I don't even know celebrities' names anymore. I didn't pay attention. So and so? No, not for me. Why? Well, actually, I follow Jesus. He says a lot about materialism and money. Non participation into the way of our society and culture. You're in a conversation with a coworker at work about a relationship. And as you chat, the question comes, have you slept with her? No. Actually, no. What are you, prude? What's wrong? Why not? Well, actually, we're followers of Jesus. And the Bible teaches and he teaches that sex is a beautiful gift given for marriage. 
marriage context, and we want to honor that, respect that. But we're waiting. It's non-participation. It's not going with the flow. It's not bowing down to what everyone else bows down to. It's not worshiping when everyone else worships. Listen, it's not a 90-foot statue. It's not a national issue. It's everyday things. And here's the thing is what we do is we look at the big one. We say, I'll never do that, but we do it every single day. I'll never bow down to a 90-foot statue, but I'll bow down to mammon every single day when I chase after money. Or the sex god. I'll bow down to that. I'll conform to fit in. I'll do whatever it takes. But non-participation, the message in this scripture is what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus in, in this tension right now as we live as Canadians, but we also live as citizens of heaven. It's I don't do what you do just because you do it and go that way. Because my values and my principles and my heart and my worship and my allegiance to Jesus trumps that. I will support Canada. I will fight for Canada. I will stand on guard for thee. But my allegiance to Christ is first. My allegiance to Jesus is first. And so every single day, I need to make decisions that reflect that. So maybe your 90-foot statue isn't a 90-foot statue, but it's something small at work, or your home, or in your bank account, or in your life. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego show us the quiet way of rebellion against the status quo. It's not doing what everyone else do, is doing. And there are going to be times when this is really clear, and there's going to be a lot of times where it's not really clear. The water's going to be so muddy, and you're going to need a brother or sister in Jesus to help clear it a little bit and point it out to you because we're all human and we all make mistakes. And that's why individualism isn't really a thing in the Bible, but it's this community of faith where we say and we correct and we hold each other accountable and say, hey, did you not know that that is not something that Christ values? Not because we are better than you or because we want you to be like us, but we are, we are holding you to, that, to that, that place of Christ. Because maybe you don't see the, the muddy waters here. Now, two things you need to know as we begin to put into practice non-participation. Number one is it will upset people because no matter how kind and gracious and soft you are, like I don't have one of those like very kind and gracious demeanors naturally. I'm, I'm loud when I talk and when, I'm, when, I, when, I, when I believe in something, I'm like right there. Some of you are like, Man, you just, when you talk, you sound, like, if I could picture the sound of Jesus coming out of someone's mouth, it sounds like you, right? You just, you just exude grace, and it doesn't matter how gracious you are, because when you say no to something that everyone else is participating in, it's like a quiet way of saying, I think that's wrong. And though, though you're not saying that, it will upset people. It will make them feel insecure. It will make them feel angry. It will make them feel defensive, and you will be unpopular, you have to be okay with being unpopular if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. You have to be okay with nobody liking you and not fitting in. You have to be okay with everybody else is going this way and you're going that way. Number two is it will cost you. Maybe in your workplace it's a sale because you're unwilling to lie about it. You're unwilling to, you know, bend the truth and manipulate the situation a little bit just to get that extra dollar in. Maybe it will cost you a promotion 
maybe even a job, maybe a friendship. It will cost you a friendship. Because you've chosen to say no to something that your friends are engaging in and they don't like that. They feel judged just because of your choices, though you are not judging their choices. Maybe one day in the future, it'll cost you a night or two in jail. Thankfully, right now, there is no death punishment, death ovens. Not like our government saying, and, you know, the police are like lining up the ovens, turning them up sometimes hotter. That's not there. But, but for many, that is in our world. We pray for the persecuted church and, and nations where they are hiding in underground or being executed for their faith. Their heads are being chopped off. Oh, did you just, yeah, that happens. That's a real thing because they're followers of Christ and they've chosen non-participation. The difference is in their culture and their nation, that means death for them. For us, it means our friends think we're funny and our neighbors look at us weird. Whatever. Where's your allegiance lie? We have to ask ourselves, is the cost worth holding to the values I believe and stand for? Is my faith rightly placed? Is my allegiance to Christ greater than my allegiance to the way of the world? And this is the question every follower of Jesus answers with every single action they make. Every single action we make, we answer this question. So we need to put in the forefront of my mind, I'm going to choose the way of Christ, which means I do not conform, as the scriptures say, to the pattern of this world. But I engage in the truth in such a way that my mind is transformed so when I'm presented with the scenario or the situation or the circumstance, I can stand in the way of Jesus because I've been radically changed. And because I daily walk with him, I will not fear the outcome. And I can say with confidence and assurance that regardless of what happens, this is the way I'm going. Not because he will rescue me, though he can, but because my values are shaped by my worship and faith in him. Therefore, my actions, my actions reflect that. Thank you so much for listening. We hope that this message brought you closer with Jesus and gave you a better understanding of your walk with him today. If you would like to know more about who we are as a church, can visit our website, weareparkway.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram at parkway.church.